This is TDPS. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Are you sick of doing promos for my new books yet? That depends. Are we at the beach? Yes, we're at Sapphire Cove, the fictional Southern California resort featured in my new gay romance series coming in 2022. This is alarming. When did we go outside? You were transported by the powerful prose of C. Travis Rice. That's my new pen name devoted to steamy and emotional tales of romance between men. Yeah, no, that's not it. I was about to eat a sandwich in the studio, and now I'm being harassed by seagulls. Brandon, get rid of the seagulls, please. Oh, that's much better. Now I have to pee. First, pre-order your copy of Sapphire Sunset, the first installment in the Sapphire Cove series, which goes on sale March 1st, 2022, from Blue Box Press, when a new member of the resort security department falls hard for the nephew of the wealthy family that owns the place, sparks fly, and sexy scandal ensues at Sapphire Cove. Uh, Yeah, could you pre-order that for me? I'm going to run to the little podcaster's room. Brandon! Come get this seagull! I can't help it if my writing sets the scene. I know what I'm going to set if someone doesn't come get this seagull. Where'd you get that sandwich? Sapphire Sunset, the first book in the Sapphire Cove series from C. Travis Rice. Now available for pre-order. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And we're already fighting. We're already arguing. I'm just glad to be here without stomach issues. <laughs> like, that's my big achievement. I have not had appendicitis or food poisoning recently. I forgot to turn down the volume on my iPad, clearly. Because you were so busy Googling symptoms for your various stomach right? ailments. But my stomach is, but my back is troubling me. And no, so- tell the story. Tell how it played out, because it's your pain is going to amuse them. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean it like that. That came out wrong. <laughs> I was, I, I'm, no, I'm baffled. Oh, that part didn't bother me at all. I'm way past being put off by that sort of thing. Um, no, I was trying to think what the story is. I just. You were in the bathroom thinking, oh, I am so glad to finally be recording without stomach issues. And then your back went out yeah, right while, at that moment. While I was thinking it. It really is true. It's so unfair. My yeah. life is so hard. Your life is really terrible. The champagne yeah. is flat and the caviar is running low. It That's is brutal. Terrible. As my sister always says, whenever I complain, nobody knows the truffles you've seen. <laughs> It's brutal. Yes, it's brutal indeed. here. Indeed, indeed, indeed. So um, I'm tempted to sort of speed right into what we're talking about today. <laughs> <laughs> Eric put up a speeding hand. Here we go. Speeding Hang hands. on. We're going to speed and 
what are we talking about that we're getting into in such a well, rush? Well, I'll tell you this. I, I think it will begin a conversation about what we're going to talk about, but... It was a. This is a true crime special edition today. Oh yeah, which means we are serving up an entire series, a four episode series, bigger than a true crime TV club, bigger big, than a, big, bigger big. than a true it's crime. It's gonna be huge movie huge, time, huge babe. Bigger than a true crime movie time. Um, but that said, I thought the series that we are going to discuss today was a tad repetitive, and I'm not sure it justified four episodes. I think so. Anyway, we're going to talk about Curse of the Chippendales. But you're trying to get in your review at the beginning of the report <laughs> I'm saying, rather than at the end. I'm, I had feelings. I'm trying to tell you that there might be parts of the series that I don't spend that I did not put as much in the notes about because I felt they were not quite as interesting as the other parts. Well, of that's the why I was wondering why we were going to rush. I'm like, <laughs> really? We got a whole hour to kill, babe, and I, I don't know that we. That there's, you know, like. I think the thing that struck me about it, just in in a sort of general, as we lead into it, sense right. is that it was looking at it, reporting on a cultural phenomenon mm-hmm. more than it was yes the um, the true crime aspect of it. That really was very belated. Mm-hmm. There were elements of it, but you don't really realize it. The surprise is like in the fourth act. You go like. Oh, my God. Yes. I mean, you don't realize that you've been talking about a crime until the story reaches kind of almost its conclusion. And there's an attempt early on to sort of tie Chippendales into an other very well-known crime, and the fit doesn't quite happen. That uh, the, And we'll get to that sort of as we talk about it, because it's in the first episode. But the murder that they really try well, to make about the Chippendales is not really about the Chippendales. It's the curse that they're trying yeah. to make it about. That's the, that's where you're, you're going. That's you know the right. the fast and loose part of this. If we're going with a curse, mm-hmm. like okay, well we've already moved out of more specific, more sort of uh, forensic right. crime reporting. We're looking at things that are curse related, and it's like, huh? I don't think ultimately, but it was. But it was indeed a crime that was a part of one of the people who worked at yes. at Chippendale. So the person who was a part of the crime was, in fact, connected to Chippendales. And so I think that's their notion of the mm-hmm. curse yeah. rather than um, there actually being a curse right, or exactly. it being actually part of the Chippendales thing. Because, yeah, I mean, really— Really, the part about this, if you watch this series, and I'm not saying don't watch it. I I thought it was interesting, and I thought it was very much of the time. It was fun to look back, and it Mm -hmm. was interesting history of the Chippendales as it went along that I didn't remember exactly the way that it unfolded. That was fun, and there's lots of old footage of Mm -hmm. Los Angeles and different parts of – I was like looking at the old Chippendales going, "Hmm, now where is that? Because I realized that Did you figure it out where it is? Pretty much. They sort of tell you. They give you the address at some point. And they eventually show yeah. you. I, but it was like, because it's over near where I used to work. Mm. Um, it's over near um, uh, the the Ripped Bodice, our favorite bookstore. In oh, so Culver it's like City. West L.A., it's Culver over, City. Yeah, it's over on, just mm-hmm. off of Venice Boulevard, ne- right next to the Sony lot. What was the Columbia lot probably right. back in those days. But MGM. That's cool. Well, we should we should kind of start to get into it. I'm sorry for pulling but, the trigger on my review the, first. But that's but. the fun part of it is that, you know, if you're going to watch it, I say that's p- sort of the fun part. But really, you don't realize 
that you're really watching. You don't realize that you've been hearing about the crime the whole time until the reveal almost at the end, which right. is which I thought was also an interesting choice on the part of the producers. Like, mm-hmm. oh, Wow. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting. But I think what every episode does is it sort of reboots the concept each time of what it meant to be a Chippendale. Yes. So let's get into the let's story. Let's get then. into it. Let's, let's get be into Chippendales, it. baby. And it starts with Eric Shaw Quinn's least favorite device of all time, a framing device. We are introduced to a retired FBI special agent named Scott Garola, who is mustachioed and talks like an retired FBI agent. Everything's really serious. <laughs> and he, he's explaining to us that he was working in the Las Vegas field office of the Federal Bureau of Investigation when a man entered off the street and described the strangest murder-for-hire plot they had ever seen. It was uh, someone had hired him to inject syringes of cyanide into people, and all of this had to do with the uh, dun-dun-dun, Chippendales. And then we get biceps and pecs and oiled-up skin and dancing. and Women we, fainting women and screaming and... Lots of bad hair and eye makeup and that sort of thing. And we get. And I'm still talking about the Chippendale. (laughs) That's right. And we get like a rapid fire introduction to a lot of people who, in this moment, are talking heads, but who they are to the story becomes clear over time. So I'll explain who they are as they sort of enter the narrative mainstream. But um, it's Los Angeles, it's 1982. Uh, we are introduced to a club called Chippendales. We see all those biceps again. We get a lot of talking heads telling us that all of this sort of explosion and display of male sexuality and women enjoying it started in the 1970s in the sexual revolution that happened during those years. And they opened the door for even anyone to have the idea of an all-male strip club. But this particular club began to take shape in the minds of some people earlier, also in the 1970s. And it was um, happening in a club in Los Angeles called Destiny 2. Which I really <laughs> loved. I was like, oh, God, it doesn't get cheesier than that. Like, <laughs> wow. There are still clubs in Los Angeles called Destiny 2. Don't kid yourself. Out by the airport, there's all kinds of clubs that are like, okay, sure. And it would, is there Everybody's t- got to go somewhere to get drunk and see some naked boobs. So you knock yourselves out, boys. Is there a meaning I'm not getting in the two? Like, is there a Destiny 1? That's the, it's something that those clubs used to do. Like, I just always, like, it's like in Atlanta, there's the Cheetah too. Like, really? Yeah. Because Cheetah was the name that we really was so meaningful that we right. needed to capture it again. Or, <laughs> like, yeah, the Cheetah too. Why not like, two Cheetahs? Right. Okay. Or <laughs> Cheetah Cheetah or whatever. Like, or a different name. Cheetah Squared. Okay. So all these people are hanging out at this club called Destiny 2. It's a discotheque. It's a happening place. And it is presided over the by- Funky Why Not out on the Sumter Highway. Yes. It's presided over by a friendly and personable guy named Steve Banerjee. Now, Steve immigrated from India as a young person. He was very polite, but he was also very reserved. He spoke with a stutter. When he first arrived in the United States, he worked at a gas station and somehow- um, he became the manager of this nightclub, and we're not really told how. And you know, I was wondering if that was, if it was the mobile station uh, in our neighborhood. <laughs> we have the nicest gas station in the entire world here in West Hollywood. It has marble floors and um, ambient lighting and uh, key lights, and I mean, it is just stunning. And it's yeah. like, 
where did this? It's just a mobile station. You know what I mean? Like, where did this come from? How you did think you it was up? Destiny One? And it was, and it 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 was owned by uh, South Asian people, like okay. owned and operated by South Asian people. So I was like, maybe. You know, this was the family gas station that, and maybe Steve, I thought about it when I was watching the show and then I forgot to research it, but it was like, maybe Steve upfitted the family gas station maybe so. with all of the money that came pouring in from his huge success with Chippendales. But yeah. like, I don't know what financed that, uh, but I love that we do have the, the fanciest um, gas station in the world. Absolutely. So... Um, Mirrors. I mean, it's just amazing. You, li- you like that gas station more than I do. Well, You're- it's just compared to every other gas station in the world. It's just like, <laughs> what happened in here? <laughs> Where's the French restaurant? <laughs> I mean, there's like, because there's racks of oil and, mm-hmm. you know, flaming hot Cheetos and the sort of things you would get, cigarettes, the sort of things you would expect to find yeah. for sale in the store part of the, but it's for sale in this really la-di-da environment, which is like, okay, I, I'm not okay. sure what's going on. Let, let me, let it, so there's apparently our party people, every time I make a story about me, they drink. I think every time you make a story about a local business here in West Hollywood, they should have like some crackers or something. That could be the new party game for them. <laughs> or just finish the bottle. <laughs> there's going to be none left by the time the episode is over. Okay. Just open a second bottle. There's plenty more. Okay. So the, here's the deal with this club, right? This big happening discotheque called Destiny 2 that was maybe possibly a former gas station. We don't know. Eric is just making that part. No, of it. no. I'm saying that it may be affiliated with okay. the Destiny 2. Um, the club is really only working on the weekends, and they're struggling to bring it's in a- It's a dumb. They're struggling the to- The club is a dumb. They're struggling to bring in a crowd on the other nights out of the week, and so they're trying different things. They're trying ladies wrestling, which is apparently somewhat of a hit. But in walks this guy named Paul Snyder. Now, if you are a true crime aficionado, you probably know Paul Snyder's name because he is at the center of a case that is about to intersect with this one. And he is not, as I- I initially thought the lead singer <laughs> for Twisted <laughs> Wait, that's D. Snyder. I know. But when they first announced him, I was like, is that the guy from Twisted Sister? And then it was His like- His hair is shorter. <laughs> like, he looks different here, but you never know. And then I thought, oh, oh, that guy. Yeah, so here we go. So he's a Canadian. That's how they introduce him. So, like, you don't figure out right away who he is. He's trying to make a name for himself. And he pitches Steve Banerjee and uh, Steve's attorney, Bob Nahir, I think is how you pronounce his name, or Bob Nahin, excuse me, N-A-H-I-N. He says, I've got this idea. I was, apparently he's straight, and we're about to find out who he's married to, but in Canada, he went to a gay male strip club. I wonder if it was Stock Bar. I, I, I don't know the I, gay strip clubs in Canada. Have you been to any? No. I've never even been to Canada. I was about to ask you, have you been to Canada? I never have. Isn't that ridiculous? On our next episode, we'll talk about why Eric's never been to Canada. We'll just do a remote show from there in the new year. I don't know if you can go there yet. Did they open up the border? Yeah, they opened up the border. We can go to Canada now. I don't know. I think they can come here. I'm not sure if we're allowed to go there. I can't keep track. Let's not talk about it. Okay, so Steve, Paul Snyder is pitching these guys. He's like, let's do an all-male strip club, but let's do it for women. And Bob, the attorney, says, I thought Paul was nuts. I thought women are never going to go for this idea. It's it's not their thing. That belief that women are just not turned on by that sort of thing. They want... 
um, things that are things that smell like lavender and have <laughs> lace on them. And as as my mother said to me, women love enjoying pornography. They just don't want to have to buy it from a store out by the airport where they might get attacked. You know, right? You have to make the purchasing of it safe. And that and that was what. These people did for them, and they yes. didn't even realize that they were filling a need that already existed. So it's January 1979. They launched the show. It's very threadbare. Paul is the MC. That's his attempt to sort of be a part of this. It's his idea, allegedly. And uh, he's going to be the master of ceremonies. And it's just men stripping for a modest crowd of women. And they show clips of it, and it does not look sexy or hot. It looks more like a variety show. <laughs> I mean, it's like... They just kind of come out and, you know, sit on a chair and start taking their clothes off. <laughs> their clothes aren't even engineered. They're not costumes. They're just clothes. And they come out and, you know, sit down and take off their shoes and socks and their pants. Right, and, yeah. And dance around a little bit in their underwear and whatever. It is very, you know, just the basics, uh, girls. It's, right. Uh, he's going to come out. He is at some point going to take off most of his clothes. But in the end, it's not going to be much of a show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So somebody asked, I think it's Steve Banerjee on camera, where did you come up with the name Chippendales for the club? And he says, well, it's the type of furniture that we use here. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're then treated to hours of footage inside clubs, and I don't see any Chippendales furniture at any point in time. It was the decorating side. He said they were trying to make it classy, and they got Chippendale furniture. It must have been for the little lobby by the front door that nobody <laughs> ever sits in next to that plastic palm tree. Right, exactly. Right by the front desk, and then you go through the doors, and everything else is a banquette and covered with vinyl, and yeah. you can hose it down when drunken ladies throw up on it. But right. um, yeah, I didn't see a lot of that but it was they were trying to make it classy which yeah. you know I think is again part of your mom's like they don't want to go out to the airport to get mm -hmm. murdered although Culver City I'm not sure how mm -hmm. safe it is well this is a this is the important Venice part Boulevard. some of that thing that my mom was talking about is the men go to those places alone a lot of the time women are not going to go to those places alone that was what she was trying to say this was women went in large groups where they could support each other and scream together and enjoy this thing in and each other's company. And there was security company. and stuff there, oh, so yeah. they didn't get the sense that they were going someplace terrible. It was very... Culver City is pretty suburban, yes, honestly. Yes, exactly. Although back then they had, you know, wild... That was when you lived here. They had wild horses and, you know, tumbleweeds. When I lived here... <laughs> no, you wouldn't move here for another, like, six or seven years after this uh, started. 20 years. Yeah. So anyway, um, <laughs> sure, that's the math we'll go with this episode. Um, the... Uh, 
the, now this they, is the 70s. I moved here in the 90s. Well, so they start the this 1979. So it's really the, it's about to be the 80s is really what it is. So it's like 10 years before you moved here. Okay. <laughs> Christopher's math triumph. <laughs> New Jeopardy host. No, I don't want to go anywhere near that gig. Talk about a curse. Yes, the, the, Jeopardy. Curse, of the Jeopardy curse. That's next week. Yeah, curse of the Jeopardy host. All right. So let's talk about this guy, Paul Schneider, right? Like, what's he doing in this story? Was it really his idea? He's the master of ceremonies, he's but he's the beginning of the curse. He's the beginning of the curse, but he's also. Or so we think. Uh-huh. He's also not really good as a master of ceremonies. And he's not really and good. And the show sucks. He's not really good at most things, as we're starting to learn. So, Paul, it turns out, is the husband of a rising starlet named Dorothy Stratton. Now you know who he is. And Dorothy Stratton has captured the attention, and I mean really captured the attention, of a man named Hugh Hefner, who runs the Playboy Empire. And Dorothy is on a path to being the playmate of the year. She's absolutely gorgeous. She is charming. Everybody who meets her is completely taken with her. And Paul is constantly at her side. And that is a huge problem for anybody who cares about or wants to work with Dorothy. He is wheeling and dealing and trying to get in on everything. And, you know. He discovered her. He brought her down here. And now he wants it to be the thing that helps him get the career that he thinks he's entitled to. Yes, exactly. And so he also sucks as a net master of ceremonies, which is yeah, another Yeah, he's also terrible at this. He's only good at spotting Dorothy. So and that's kind of it. So they they replace him as the MC, and they bring in a guy named Richard Barsh, who is then interviewed extensively on this episode. And seems kind of fun. And seems kind of fun. And he turns it into a more organized show. The men start to have more sort of characters. There's there's a script to it, and something there are costumes. That, something that happens in one of the, like their first or earliest shows is that they were actually busted by the cops because they knew nothing about the local liquor laws, and they didn't know that if you're having stripping and alcohol in the same place, there are certain things the strippers cannot do, and one of them is kissing the women. I have to say, we then see clip after clip after clip after clip throughout the whole series of the strippers kissing the women, so I guess they never obeyed that law. (laughs) Or they worked out a deal, or they came up with a way around it, the workaround. Yeah. So, but getting back to your point that Richard was fun, he worked the police bust into the show. He's, he had a stripper then, from then on, play then became a bit in every uh, girl's night out movie for the rest of history, where the you have the right to remain sexy, and the and the cop <laughs> that who you thought was there to bust him turns out to be the stripper. Like, how many times have we seen that trip? Apparently, it really happened at Chippendale. It really they, happened, and they actually started costuming people yep. as police officers, yep. and then other, um, I guess, types. Yeah. That people fantasize about. That's it. He people. said it went from a dance contest to a woman's fantasy show. Um, whether or not to admit men starts to become an issue. And this is I, easy to interpret this as an anti-gay thing, but it wasn't in the time. They were very convinced that if men were present, the women wouldn't feel comfortable to cut loose and scream and tip. And and, and it, it was sort of their thing. It was supposed to be their yeah, space. Yeah, like it was their club. Yeah. 
They also start to have crowd control issues, which uh, put them in the eye of the fire department. And that is going to be an ongoing thing that we will come back to as we talk about this. And they added firemen to the show. Right. <laughs> so, and then we start to develop what I call the B storyline of the series, which if you would like to talk about it, we can. I don't devote that much energy to it, but it's the story of Michael Rapp, who is arguably... When, this, when it all begins, he is the youngest and most attractive of all the Chippendales, and his meteoric rise to stripper fame is something you have seen played out a it's million like times. The, yeah, it's like the Ryan Phillippe part in right. 54. Right. It's just sort of like, it's kind of background. It provides that sort of cultural context right. that, I, that I was talking about earlier. I don't know that we need to focus on him so much. He was a kid from, I don't know, a small town around Los Angeles who was... Trying to make a name for himself, went in, got cast right off, and became this sort of mm-hmm. really featured player there. And then when a when a there was a regime change mm-hmm. a little later on, and it catapulted him into a sort of place of of actual fame. But right. I think that gets ahead of the story. So yeah, we don't have to get ahead of the story. All we can tell you is that he starts a relationship and then eventually a marriage with one of the club's regulars. Her name is Nancy Deneen, or that is her name today, as she is also interviewed. So what the first episode is really about is that Dorothy Stratton's fame is also rising as Chippendales is sort of becoming a thing and a name and a local institution in Los Angeles. And... Um, Dorothy is 20 years old, which was a shock to me. I didn't realize she was that young. Yeah. Um, stop me because I have listened to the Wondery podcast on the murder of Dorothy Stratton, which I recommend for anybody who's curious about the story of Dorothy and Paul. There are some facts there that are left out of this, I think, in service of being a little bit more neutral on the topic of Paul Schneider than maybe they should be before he does what he does next, but... Dorothy gets a job. Um, Dorothy is, becomes Playmate of the Year. She gets a job in a Peter Bogdanovich film, which I think they don't cover right. in this, or they mention in they passing. They mention it, yeah. but yeah. And she leaves Paul. She does. And uh, he loses his mind. He doesn't have a visa, or his visa has expired. He has no source of income other than her. Because he's been fired at Chippendales and yeah. replaced by this other guy who actually has some show business experience. Yeah. And so... Um, he um, he kills her. I mean, there's no other and way himself. to himself. He kills her and himself, but he also tortures her, which is yeah. hideous. Um, I saw, I did a little, I wanted to refresh what I knew about her case from the podcast, and I think, as if this makes it better, I think he tortured her corpse. I don't know if he tortured her while she was alive. I don't know, but it was but clearly it, a revenge thing. He yeah. felt like he, she owed him and she she dumped him like mm-hmm. she just couldn't deal with it anymore and she finally moved on and that's covered in this too yeah um the thing i want to throw in that i don't think they see fit to mention is dorothy was 17 when he met her she was in high school he was 27 and when he submitted the naked pictures of her to playboy she was 18 and in canada the law at the time said that if you were under 19 your parents had to approve of you sending in naked pictures anywhere, so her mother had to sign the approval. There was kind of an age difference. She was really young. <laughs> she was pretty damn young when yeah. they got together. So a lot of uh, that's a whole nother story that they don't really get into here. Right. They're just looking to serve the curse. So yeah. former employee murders his girlfriend and kills himself in yeah. a sordid and really high profile um, kind of way. It was 
the they made that movie Idiot. with Eric Roberts and Star Eighty, and right? Yeah, Mariel Hemingway, I think. Yes. one of the Hemingway daughters. I um, think they changed the names, but it was Bob Fosse made it clear. He made that movie, made it clear it was about Dorothy Stratton. Yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah, there it has been. It has been a much uh, heralded case, and it, it was, and it was that sort of cautionary tale of the challenge of having a more sexually liberated culture. Mm-hmm. Without it becoming an abusive one, and right. the the potential for exploitation and the very blurred lines that yeah. that that created um, for Paul Snyder, but also for um, Hugh Hefner and for the whole Playboy mystique was it was again a lot yeah. of blurred lines. And and he was at the interview his former girlfriend, her, who was his girlfriend at the time, also a playmate, Theodora. I'm blanking on her last name, and she says it was the first truly terrible thing that entered our world. It rocked our world. And the Wondery podcast goes into the impact that it had on Hugh Hefner emotionally and personally. Like, did I do enough? Did I see how abusive Paul was? Did I, you know, all the, it was, yeah. My old writing partner said that Hugh had a similar kind of response to her because of Dorothy. Right. That he was very protective of her because he saw her making some of the same guy choices mm. that Dorothy made and yeah. was very um and she had some history in and around with you know men being yeah not not being particularly good to her yeah. along the way mm-hmm. um which I think she has been you know getting even forever since <laughs> that's, I don't know my takeaway that sounds like that sounds like a fair take on your um, old and, writing partner you know, <laughs> yeah whatever whatever but um the the real I, I don't mean to be glib about the murder of Dorothy Stratton in this context, but the connection here is pretty simple, which is that the Chippendales uh, bow ties and the cuffs that have become their signature really were inspired by the Playboy bunny ears. Absolutely. Hugh Hefner knew this. And cuffs and bow ties. The girls wore those as well. Oh, that's right. That's right. They didn't. It wasn't <laughs> just. They, they didn't wear bunny ears. They the, cut up bunny ears and turned them into cuffs and bow ties. That's the connection. No, no right. Of course. And Hugh Hefner sort of didn't care. He thought it was fun. Yeah, they brought he him loved to the it. club and, and he thought it was, you know, it was. Yeah, they made an exception because it was Hugh Hefner. They didn't right. usually let men, but his girlfriend brought him to the club. But the girlfriend said she enjoyed coming. She didn't yeah. enjoy bringing Hugh and she never brought him again, Or, but she enjoyed bringing her girlfriends and they would come and have a good time. And it was their chance to get some of their own. And I think that really captures what was ultimately the thing that was such a. A huge success for them. And I don't mean to beat the same drum every time we do in any kind of episode about women's sexuality, but this is also coinciding roughly with the birth of Harlequin. This is also the the development of the commercial paperback romance novel that was about female authors writing about their romantic uh, yeah. fantasies. This is also, they weren't connected to Chippendales, but at the not. same time I was thinking like, I'm looking at Chippendales and I'm thinking... It'll be a bit, but like, and we get to one, but like, how many women were involved in the crafting of this fantasy? It's it's all men at the helm of this business. You know, I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is very much, but it is about men getting in touch with their own sexuality and relating to women in the way that mm-hmm. that they do. So it. It didn't have the same kind. Sometimes you just think, well, you might want to ask a woman once in a while. Oh but my God. because it was men presenting themselves, right? it seemed like, okay, I also thought there was probably, I mean, the inspiration was a gay bar. And I always, mm-hmm. and I thought as I was watching 
maybe some of these oh, people yeah, we'll involved get to that. Yeah. were uh, batting for both teams. I, I, I agree. had some sense that there was was that kind of element to it. But again, not one word in the entire uh, series of really mentioning that that yeah. I recall. No. It no. didn't come up, but it seemed like probably a possibility. And we're about to get there with the entry of a new character in the story, and his name is Nick Denoya. And the reason Nick enters the story... <laughs> because he'll annoy you. Because he'll annoy you, and that's kind of how it goes. Um, Steve Banerjee is witnessing Chippendales in Los Angeles become a massive success, and he has his eyes on a more distant prize, which is New York City. Because if you are in the... Yes, Eric, who is ripping a finger. The other thing that also happens during this point is that he begins to maximize the branding yes. of Chippendales. Like the calendars and the yes. the the posters and the pinups and the whatever. He is really building up his profits. He's probably making more from that than he is from the club. Right. Frankly, by the time this happens, but he wants to begin to expand the club itself, the the actual operations. But he has really made Chippendales into this enormous brand. Yeah, absolutely. He did it himself so that when uh, when Nick arrives, he is arriving at something that's already a huge international success well outside the doors of this this theater, but Steve doesn't have the talents himself to take the to to expand the club. To, well, uh, right. To and, move to the New York and, and level. And see what you think about, this is how I sort of interpreted it. Like, Steve doesn't have the connections in New York City itself. He's introduced to this man, Nick DeNoya, who is a children's television producer who has a, a unicorn tales or something. They show a clip of it. But he's also apparently done a lot of theater and stage yeah. stuff. Okay, he is somebody, and I think that was the thing he had more than his connections. I think it yeah. was he had an actual sense of how you put together a stage show, which really at this point nobody connected to Chippendales has had. <laughs> I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I'd like to take a moment to congratulate my co-host and producing partner, Christopher Rice. He's got not one, but four new books coming out in 2022. But today, I'd like to tell you about one in particular, a standalone thriller called Decimate. It's the terrifying story of what happens to our kitchen here at the studio when I ask Christopher to make the tea. Yeah, no. When I said improvise the promo, I didn't say you could make shit up. I am not making this up. Look at that kitchen. Okay. Hi, party people. Decimate is actually a thriller about telekinesis and near-death experiences. The page-turning tale of a woman who becomes convinced her brother is being held hostage by a supernatural force following his death in a fiery plane crash. It has nothing to do with tea or our kitchen, and you can pre-order it on Amazon now. And while it is spine-tingling and terrifying, it is nothing compared to what I'm going to have to order off of Amazon to clean up that kitchen. Will you shut up about tea and our kitchen? Oh, I never shut up about tea. (laughs) 
So Nick DeNoia is brought in to help set up the New York club, but somebody, probably Nick, says, first, let me come out to L.A. and revamp your stage show. And like that's a that sound felt like it was a condition of his deal because what he what he wanted what Nick wanted was to control what was happening on stage and Steve said okay sure so Richard uh, Barsh that was really not Steve's thing right but Richard Barsh is introduced to Nick and they say this is your producer now and he's like why do we need a new producer we already have a show well famous last words. Nick completely redoes the show and eventually locks horns with Richard to the extent that he's forced out. And the show that Nick then begins to put together looks a lot better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really actually a show. Exactly. It becomes something that that begins to, it becomes the thing that everybody saw on Sally, Jesse, Raphael. It right. becomes the, the sort of slick, polished, um, much more produced kind of... Um, a, Product, right? That um, and reproducible product that has that became sort of the 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 Chippendales style. Exactly. Um, It is also where he approached the guy Michael Rapp. Michael Rapp, I think, is his name, right? Who he said was going to be, you know, the star of the New York show, and would he be interested in that job or whatever? But he was the one who saw in Michael. The potential. Michael was already a star at the LA mm-hmm. Club, but he saw the potential for much more from Michael and kind of really made him into yeah. the big star that he apparently was at the time. I have no recollection of him, but sure. Okay. Yeah. If they say so. The other thing that happened was the popularity of of the club and the idea began to spill outside and there began to be copycats mm-hmm. and there started to be backlash. To that, mm-hmm. um, people started. There was somebody was setting fire to um, uh, clubs where male strippers were um, part of the. So Chippendales beefed up their security the in response, and nothing happened to Chippendales. Yeah, but but mm. these other clubs got burned out, right? And, and in L.A., of, this was in L.A., right? This was in L.A. This was before. but this was happening in conjunction with the sort of Reagan era moral majority backlash, right. crackdown on pornography, and so everybody kind of assumed that maybe it was part of that, and that's how it's presented in the show when it first comes around, as we sort of move from episode one to episode two. So this is all sort of the back as they're looking to lo- to move into this bigger market in the go- the eighties. They, um, they, you know, they. All of this is happening in and around the Chippendales franchise in Los Angeles. Absolutely. So this is something else happens around this time, which is that Nick has done such a good job with the LA show. It's raking in the box. It's it's viewed as a level up. He gets Steve to make a business deal with him on a napkin. They call it ever after the napkin deal. Right. In a diner, and he gives him partial ownership in the company. And he gives him outright ownership of any future touring company that the Chippendales might come up with. In that moment, there isn't one. They're just planning to go to New York and set up a new club there. That would be the second location. But he signs it on a napkin. There are a lot of people who present this as if it's like he took advantage of Steve or something. I'm like, it's a business deal. Whether you used a napkin or not, like maybe you should have gone to a lawyer's office. But that usually gets the... That you know that usually comes down on the person who is the recipient or the beneficiary of the deal, not the signatory. Anyway, but they they show fo- footage of a diner and weird lights, and the napkin deal becomes very important because the whole crew goes off to New York 
We're introduced to two new players. One is Eric Gilbert, the creative director of Chippendales from 1983 to 91. And Eric's defining characteristic is that he absolutely fucking hates Nick DeNoia. I mean, Every time he's on camera, he says this guy was a prick. He overthought everything. He acted like we were doing something serious and artistic. It's a goddamn male burlesque show. What is his problem? Blah, 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 blah. I mean, just yeah. like... Not a fan. We're also introduced to the first woman who is involved in the production angle of <laughs> Chippendales. Other than uh, Matt's wife, uh, right. or Mike's wife. Um, yeah, this is the first woman in pretty much the whole show. Candace Mayron, um, she's the associate producer, and she becomes Nick's right-hand person. She's Team Nick. If Eric Gilbert is the anti-Nick, she is Team Nick. We're also introduced to a Chippendale named Reed Scott, who will become more important later in the show. But he says he was the average Chippendale. He was like the workman Chippendale. Steve said to him, you're not hot enough to be he was a, a chip star. and drone. <laughs> He's a chip and drone, right, exactly. So um, moving us sort of through a lot of this. Uh, the New York show becomes a massive, massive hit. <laughs> the theater is a success. The theater is a success. Steve and Nick are at each other's fucking throats. They can no longer work together. They have a huge falling out. But because of the napkin deal, Nick has the ability to launch a Chippendales touring company, which he does, and it's a huge hit. In fact, it is in some respects a bigger hit than the New York or L.A. clubs combined because he can play these big like theaters and he can fly to Indianapolis. And Nick has the ability to promote it. He can actually go on camera and not seem right. like a dweeb, which really Steve, bless his heart, can't. Right. And that's that's been a big source of the falling out is that Nick has become, because of his charisma, the voice and the face of Chippendales in the media and Steve doesn't like that and that's the tension. And they, he really is yeah. introduced as the guy who founded Chippendales. Like it yeah. is it is really Steve really gets shoved aside and Yeah. You know, I'm not saying that that makes everything okay, but yeah. you kind of see where the animosity starts to come from. So, so he's in the middle of a very successful tour. Mm-hmm. This fight is going on. The uh, Steve is um, keeping his, a firm grip on the rest of the empire. Right. And uh, he has dinner with Candace. This is Nick. And he says, I got to fly back to New York. I got to deal with some stuff business related. His office is in New York. They toast. They're happy. He flies back to New York. He's shot in the head in his office. His uh, male secretary is down the hall. I don't know why it's important to say he's a male secretary, but they do. I think because it's his voice we hear on the 911 call. Um, uh, That is the one moment of the show where I actually kind of cackle because they play the audio from the 911 call. And if you are any kind of true crime, whatever, you know that 911 callers are the most stone-cold people ever because they have to be. But this woman, she's like, where is your emergency? What happened? Oh, we've shot in the head. Okay, where is your emergency? And they say, it's at Chippendales. And she literally goes, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, lady, keep it professional. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, the cops show up. We meet Mike Giddies, the NYPD detective. Uh, they... The, the secretary says he heard a shot in the adjacent office. He heard the exit door close. He ran down. He discovered Nick's body, discovered him dead. There are no leads. 
They can't, you know, meanwhile, Candace in Indianapolis is like, we know who did this. Like, it has to be Steve. This, they were having a business dispute. It was terrible. The New York cop says people have business disputes all the time. Most businesses are, are about people having disputes. Christopher and I fight I like Jesus wild animals. Jesus Christ, if you don't stop playing with that hair clip, I'm going to replace you with uh, <laughs> with Sally Jesse Raphael, who you mentioned earlier. She's got to be somewhere. Um, anyway, <laughs> so. Our nursing home. A nursing home. <laughs> anyway, um, so let's see where to, so we're talking. Let me look at my notes here. So blah blah blah. Oh, the, I got to talk about this moment because this was the most dramatic. Got to. Candace is talking about the show is going on in Indianapolis, even though Nick's been murdered. Right, because right? that's what Nick would want. Because that's what Nick would want. And there's a moment where they release, and I think it was the role that Michael was playing, Michael Pitt, the the most perfect man right and everyone screams and in that moment candace takes the opportunity to scream out her grief into that crowd noise and nobody hears her or notices like she just purges yeah not the grief part but like yeah we went to a birthday party once at uh, hard rock cafe do they still have hard Mm -hmm. rock cafes not here and they brought in like this garage band to start playing and it was the most deafening noise and so i just was like primal screaming because in the middle of a restaurant because i could absolutely all right let's recommend it let's get to the meat of this shit here because this is when stuff really starts then you realize that we've been listening to a crime show the whole time um Shit really starts to go down in Los Angeles. Chippendales is in trouble. Steve Banerjee is now addicted to drugs. He has a racial discrimination suit brought against him because at 10 o'clock they've decided to start letting men into the club but after the show is over. people of color. But not people of color. He's got a well-known history of racism with his employees. So shit is going down. And 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 the, this is the montage in the biopic that always kills you, the downward slide, right? And so Chippendales is, uh, loses their club space. They're now nomadic. They're playing in other venues. Reed Scott, who we mentioned earlier, uh, he's become like a master of ceremonies. He's become a central guy. And then he decides he's going to fucking jump ship. He's had enough. A rival has started up called Adonis, Men of Hollywood, otherwise known as My Bathroom. Right. Um, it's... They show the clips. It's it's super eighties. It's like Chippendales meets a chorus line. I don't know. It's like I don't know how to describe it. It's long. Everybody's got long flowing hair. It's sort of like I don't know, gay Viking stuff. Um, so they launch a show. Or the Vampire Chronicles. They're way too big to be the Vampire Chronicles. They aren't skinny enough. They aren't anemic enough. Anyway, um, their hair is long and flowing, and they're beautiful. Exactly. Very much so. Very unrise. Um, so Reed Scott gets a job with Adonis to be their master of ceremonies for a show that they're putting together in Blackpool, England. So he flies across the pond. He vacates the burning trash heap that Chippendales has become. And he's on stage getting ready to do their show, or I think he even does the first part of the show. And the local police come up, they pull him off stage, and they say, we have been made aware of a murder-for-hire plot against you. So remember the FBI agent from the very beginning of this series? Um, So then the show goes somewhere in the American Midwest. We get a title card on the screen, and we are not in L.A. anymore by any stretch, and we're introduced to a man who's known only as Strawberry, who looks a bit more like rhubarb, to be honest. Starts detailing how he met this guy named, uh, or this guy approached him when he was working, I think, in Los Angeles on something. 
uh, named Ray Cologne, but it's spelled colon, right? right? Um, and <laughs> Which I think is incredibly uh, <laughs> overly symbolic. And he says Ray Cologne tried to recruit him for a murder plot against Red Scott or Reed Scott. It's spelled Reed. I don't know if it's Red or Reed. Um, Strawberry tells us he was so freaked out, he thought the only thing he could do was play along to a certain extent and then go to the authorities. The authorities think it's possible Strawberry played along until he got cold feet and then went to the authorities. Right. But um, his orders are to fly to the United Kingdom with these syringes full of cyanide and then to inject them in Reed and other people who are not interviewed or named, which means they did not want to be in this special. Right, but okay. they were also part of the Adonis troop. Right. It was an, an assault on Adonis <laughs> men of Hollywood in Blackpool, England. And it was the weirdest. I was like, where are we? Where is this series going? I couldn't believe it. So Strawberry, by his own accounts... Is thinks he's going to be able to jet before he gets to the airport, but Ray insists on taking him to the airport. So Strawberry actually has to fly to England, right. which sounds like a huge pain in the ass. Right? He says in England he decides he's but not. But he's afraid Ray will kill him if he doesn't yes. do it because he's too far in. So he goes. Totally. So um, he goes to England. He throws out the syringes there, again by his own account. He gets on a plane. He flies to Las Vegas. Maybe that was the first flight he could get. And that's where he walks into the FBI field office and tells them all about this murder plot. Um, they, this is the part where, like, I wasn't really clear how the FBI flipped Ray Cologne so easily. I think maybe it's because Ray is an idiot who can't stop fucking talking about the crimes he wants to commit. I think that seems to be, um, yeah, yeah, a part of it. Also, he was stupid enough to take this gig in the first place. <laughs> doesn't seem like he's really been well compensated or that it was a great gig. But for some reason, yeah, he took this gig, which was to kill Steve. Uh, no, no. To kill Nick DeNoia. Right. Which he admits to under what sounds like minimal questioning and pressure in the FBI office. He just says, oh, yeah, not only this, but also this, too. I've kind of been in this right. game for a while. Um, because he's trying to deal is what it is. He's like, I'm going to give you Steve Banerjee. And you also know. burn down um, clubs in Los Angeles who are competing with the Chippendales brand. And there it is. Those those firebombs. Yeah. The whole Chippendales, what you realize that you get to the end, the thing that I was talking about is that Chippendales was a criminal operation Pretty much right along. Yeah. It didn't like become one when things went bad or got successful at the end, but it was criminal pretty much from the gate. He well, was a corrupt club owner who did whatever it took to succeed, kind of, you know, along some other models that you might, right, um, that might come to mind, but was very much a, a you know, a, ongoing criminal operation. It was, I think, ultimately it was a RICO yeah, investigation. That's what I was going to say. I learned what RICO investigation finally meant. I didn't connect the two, but it's if your business has profited from criminal enterprise or repeated criminal acts. Right. And so firebombing your competitors and letting everybody think it was a moral majority attack or whatever you want to call it back then. And, uh, you know, killing your, your a business partner that you no longer want to be in business with. Right. All of this, it becomes a RICO case, which allows the FBI to do a lot more than they might be able to do otherwise. So it then, and I don't know if we're going to go into all, this is like a movie, what unfolds next, but Ray becomes their cooperating witness, I guess you'd call it, to try to get Steve Banerjee on tape confessing to the fact that he orchestrated all of this. And this, once again goes international because first Ray gets Steve to pay him money for a lawyer while he's wearing a wire. 
that that's not enough evidence. Then they finally they they come up with a story that Ray has become an international fugitive, which he shares with Steve, and he says, right. "If you want to know what they have on you, you've got to fly to what is where do they go? Belgium or something? The first time it was sure. Austria, Austria, it's maybe. Like, yeah, he says you got to come over here and meet me, and I think bring me some more money. I think he asked for more money. Yeah." And um, so finally, and I mean, it's like a espionage. They go to a couple of places. I think Austria is where they finally bag him. Yeah. Maybe it's Italy. Maybe he goes yeah. to Italy first, Milan right. or somewhere. And then he goes to Vienna. And he, meanwhile, he's already- But ra- he can't get Steve to actually say the words that the FBI needs to hear to get Steve, that he hired right. him to do the killings. Because the case has landed on the desk of David Shepard, who's interviewed. He's an attorney for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles, and he, he's being very stringent about what we need to get this case through trial. Yeah. You need him to say this, and you need him to say it on tape. Uh, it's better, he says, to have that than a confession, because you can always say a confession was coerced. Right. Okay. So eventually, and I mean, it's like down to the last wire. They Ray meets him in a hotel piano bar that's too noisy and they can't hear anything. So they get Ray to bring him back to the hotel room. And finally, 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 Steve Banerjee admits. Two or three tries. Yeah. He finally admits that he was, he lets his hair down and admits. And he's been really cagey about it because he knows they're investigating him. It's yeah. not, they've been investigating him before this yeah. for other things mm-hmm. um, associated. But this is the big. Yeah. Uh, this is the big enchilada. And that that gets him. I mean, that really brings the whole house of cards down. He he pleads guilty, Banerjee does. Um, he kills himself in jail before sentencing, which is a bitter pill for Candace Mayerson to swallow because she says, we've known for seven years that Steve Banerjee killed Nick DeNoya, and we've been waiting for this moment, but they don't get justice in the end. Um that Ray Cologne gets. They wanted his death to last long. It's <laughs> just like, well, I think. He was convicted, a... disgraced, and dead. What else do you want? <laughs> what were you expecting, Kansas? Drawn and quartered? His bowels sprinkled on the streets in front of his family home? Like, what were you, what did you want? <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't be laughing over a man kill himself, but it's that bloodlust that does come up in the family. I mean, I, yeah. absolutely. You want justice, but like, at what form was that going to take? Right, yeah. Um, that This also, and this is a throwaway line that I couldn't quite make sense of. Apparently, all of this put Adonis out of business. I was like, how? How did it put a rival company like? Because it was <laughs> shit to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> they lost one guy who just stopped working for them. It just fell over. To like it's yeah. like, yeah, it probably did not have that much going for it in the first place. The other thing that's interesting is that it also wiped out Chippendales. There's only one Chippendales in Las Which Vegas now. I have been to. Would you like to hear about my Chippendales And they experience? let everybody yeah. in now. They do let everybody in. Um, at the height of its success, Chippendale was grossing $35 million a year. Sorry, I wanted to throw that in. That was in the title cards. But yeah. And that used to be a lot of money. That, it was, that used to like, <laughs> buy the, you a house. Not the price of a, of a two-bedroom house in West Hollywood. Uh, right, exactly. Um, Chippendales is at the Rio in Las Vegas. I have been. I was not comfortable. <laughs> It's not. But it like, was because he was at the Rio. Right. And what else were you going to fucking do at the Rio other than try to get away? Um, 
They have a big diversity and inclusion statement on their website. We are open to all. Everyone is welcome. And so what that meant was there was me and like one other gay guy who had been dragged there by a throng of screaming uh-huh. women. And we were both horrified and our arms were crossed. And I have to say, and, and I'm no priest, as we well know on this show, I didn't find much of it very sexy because it was too hetero for me. Like, gay go-go boys in gay clubs, they know how to fucking dance. They move. They're sinuous. They're sexy. These guys, um, it's a lot of- And they're frequently straight, so let's be fair. That's fine, but they know the vibe in the club. It is a different aesthetic. The Chippendales take their clothes off, bend their hips a little, and point. It's a lot of hip bending and pointing. It's like pointing to show the bicep and pointing to show the... I, I guess well, women like being pointed at more at than I do. Or at the Chippendales, because Magic Mike, I think, does more than point. Yeah, I think so. They've got a show in Vegas, too, and it seems to be doing pretty fucking well. Yeah, and I think Chippendales is doing fine as as well. So, anyway, that was... Um, well, we had a lot more to cover than I realized. I had to we had to speed things up there at the end. I got a little lost in the details, but with the club and the Playboy and all. Well, it was an expanded edition. It was it a was. Um, special edition version of of True Crime TV Club, which we hope you've enjoyed. Um, Absolutely, and it was kind of a fun watch. I hope you watched it. I, I think that it it's was... on Discovery Plus. We forgot to mention that. Oh yeah, yeah, Discovery um, Plus. But it's also on um, the, the regular ID. I don't know. That you mean the Amazon subscription channel? The one where you can watch it with commercials. The one where you can watch it for free. I think free. it aired on Discovery. I yeah. think so, but I don't know that for sure. Check it out. It's four episodes. We just summarized four hour-long episodes for you because we're that good here at TDPS. my God, we're good. And because there really wasn't a lot going on. I mean, we could have talked more about Matt and his child and his wife. Yeah, he did. Breaking yeah, up yeah, and just, not being whatever. married to her anymore. And I'm sorry, but it was very sort of, you know... Life of somebody he got he got out of control. We could talk about who was hired, but the special didn't really talk about the man who was brought in to replace Nick in New York, who looked like a huge queen. But I don't want to make any assumptions. Oops, I just yeah, did. they um, all kind of did. Ray Cologne seemed like a huge queen. Steve seemed like a huge queen. Yeah. Nick certainly seemed like a huge queen. Like I think there were probably, but there really was no effort made to. Um, to include that information, although I I, I tend to think it was Candace implicit. said at one point Nick was a very private person, which my gaydar goes, maybe, yeah, maybe, and maybe they were all you know straight as the day is long. I have no idea; it was not included, but it was my sense that there was sort of the. So it really may have been a case of the you know, the really gay mafia. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Okay, so on our next episode, this was technically not, this was True Crime Special Edition, not True Crime TV Club. Next week, we've got a True Crime TV Club, but it's a, it's a, we're talking about a two part episode. So logistically, things are just a fucking mess. Things are on just the out of control we're here. Just out but of it's control. the holidays, so, yeah. you know, what the fuck. But the holidays. <laughs> That's what I was going to say on all my Christmas cards this year. It's the holidays. What the fuck? But it's spelled out in Holly. <laughs> Please, some party person, please generate that image for us. Please, please, please. Okay, the holidays are... Let me pitch my voice right for this. The holidays are also the time of a tragic anniversary, and that's the mysterious death of actress Brittany Murphy. And that is the subject of our next True Crime TV Club. We're serving up the two-part HBO Max documentary, What Happened, Comma, Brittany Murphy. It's not What Happened to Brittany Murphy, which is what I called it for the weeks up until we did this episode. 
It's actually called "What Happened, Comma Brittany Murphy." As though they're asking, and I'm like, you know, she's dead, right? Right. I don't. I don't. I don't know if they're asking the right person yeah. about that. And the documentary will make that clear. Yeah. Um, standard disclaimer. Our job here, if it's your first time listening to the podcast, you do not need to go and watch this to enjoy our conversation about it. In fact, Cindy Conforti says you should not make that Although, mistake. this is HBO, and it's pretty well done. Yeah. So. Blumhouse and HBO. Blumhouse, yeah. yeah the, all those horror movies. Until next time and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Schalkwin. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.